Hello, this is Paul Bainsfair and this is the IPA podcast. This week we're going to do a little bit of um, future gazing and ask ourselves what the world looks like in 2050. Uh, Of course, no one knows the answer to that, but we are lucky enough to have with us uh, Daniel Franklin, who is one of the uh, editors, uh, in fact, the executive and diplomatic editor of The Economist. And unlike most of us, Daniel doesn't just have an opinion about things, but he uses data to look into the future and make his predictions and insights. So let's hear what he has to say about 2050. Okay, so here I am with with Daniel. Um, One of the things that um, is so interesting about Daniel's observations about the future is that most of them are based on data. As we all know, making predictions is a risky business. But uh, Daniel, you've used data to draw out some of these insights uh, uh, from, from what you can see. And the one that I think was quite stunning and, and really took everybody's uh, kind of uh, attention right from the off was the, the, the issue around demography and how the ageing population is changing. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Yes, I think demography is always a good place to start because it is... Um, uh, a driver of so much of the changes that we're likely to see over the coming decades. And although you can't be totally sure about um, what the precise future will look like demographically, you can have a pretty good idea of some of the, 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 the big trends. So it's very informative in a number of ways. And you mentioned ageing. Um, that's one of the main um, uh, things or, or t- trends that, that is going to be happening in, in the world. Average age or median age of the world is going to go up by uh, about nine years uh, by 2050. So that's a, a good thing because people are living longer. Um, but if you look at the just the shape of the world's population, when, when I grew up, um, we had something called the population pyramid. You remember that? It, that's what the population looked like. It, it, it resembled somewhere in Egypt with uh, the base, the youngest uh, uh, group of, of uh, people, the biggest share of the population, and it would go prog- get progressively smaller until you got to the peak of the pyramid. Well, now uh, that shape has has changed. If you look at the global population picture, it's more like um, the. Uh, 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 the, the, the cathedral in uh, St Paul's Cathedral or, or, or the Vatican, uh, it looks like a dome. Uh, it still has a pretty big base, but the base is smaller than it was, and it's bulged in the middle and it's getting a bit thicker at the end because people are living longer. Um, the, the, the base of it is smaller because people uh, fertility rates have, have uh, declined uh, globally. And then if you leap forward to 2050, it's going to be um, changing again to something much more like a Roman pillar. (laughs) So it's almost, um, you find, if you look at each five-year slice of population by age, um, they're more or less uh, even right to right Is this because the the, the bulge that that occurred after the war, the the so-called baby booms, have just moved right through and, and almost would have moved out by they're moving they're moving through they're living longer so that um, instead of a, a spar at the top you have more of a of a pillar or a column um, and people have carried on having um, fewer and fewer uh, smaller and smaller families if you look even in countries where you would expect birth rates to be high very um, traditional Catholic countries for example birth rates in some of those places are very very low Italy Spain for example. So that, that, what's interesting is not just this 
dramatically changing pattern. It's the, it's the implications of it for all sorts of um, economic um, uh, reasons for the, the size of the workforce, the size of the working age population that is going to be having to support a much bigger elderly population um, for, for the, uh, uh, the social policies that will have to come into place and the much, much bigger market of elderly people that's going to be an addressable market, an increasingly exciting market in many ways. Um, for all sorts of is, I, industries, but th so that's one look at democracy. Mm. But there are many others that are that are, I think, um, extremely important and very fascinating, um, including just the overall size of population. So if you look at um, the number of people on the planet, uh, we're going to go from um, a little over seven billion today to about nine and a half billion by 2050, according to the UN projections. And that's a dramatic increase. It, it took all of humanity till about 1800 to reach uh, 1 billion people. We, we put on an extra 1 billion from 6, 6 billion to 7 billion in a little matter of 12 years. So these are, these are extraordinary I mean, this, rapid changes. You, 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 you will remember, as I, as I do, when we were young, before the fear of climate change, the big, the big fear seemed to be population. Yes. And, and could, the, could the world sustain this population yes. growth? Is, is that an issue? Well, that's a recurring theme, and you've had it since Malthus. You've had the worry about um, not being able, about, about, about just having too many people for the, for, for the planet. So far, we've gone to this world of 7 billion um, with actually um, a huge rise in food production because of technology. Um, I mean, there are parts of the world that are uh, scandalously um, short of food, but that's not because we're not producing enough food in aggregate, it's because of the uneven distribution. Um, and there's every chance that technology will, will be able to sustain a, a population of 9 or 10 billion as well. There will be great strains on other resources, water in particular, um, but again, better, better management of those resources should make this um, much more populous planet um, uh, something that we can that we can manage, uh, but there's no doubt that, that that it will create lots and lots of policy issues, and the distribution of these extra people is uneven. That's another fascinating thing when you look at where these uh, extra billions are going to be. About half of the extra people are going to be in Africa, um, with with all the both opportunities and potential problems that that represents. I mean, huge economic opportunity for Africa, but also potentially. If the economies don't grow to absorb those those people, um, then potentially huge social and migration problems as, as well. Um, India growing rapidly. China is doing the opposite. Right? China is aging very fast. Japan is the country that is aging most uh, rapidly of the, among the large economies and is therefore a very interesting laboratory of um, what, what a rich aging economy does in terms of uh, services and products for that for that elderly population, and the going back to the the, the population growth, um, many of the people that we will, we will find to be in the world will be in increasingly in urban rather than rural yes. environments. Is That's that right? another huge change. And again, if you look at the sweep of history for most of uh, human existence, we were overwhelmingly rural. We were farmers. We were producing food. Cities came along relatively late, and it's only um, five, six years ago that the world crossed the threshold of becoming a um, majority urban um, planet with, in terms of where people live. 
and that's only going to continue. So the, the uh, forecasts are that by mid-century will perhaps be uh, two-thirds or even more urban compared with rural. So much of the future of, of, of development and of industry and of um, the issues that people are policymakers are going to be grappling with are urban issues. If you think of the environment, you've got to get the, uh, the urban environment as sensible and sane as possible if, mm. to, to cope with this much more populous planet. Yes, particularly in the developing world where the cities on the whole don't seem to be running as smoothly as Yes, and that's going like. to be where you're going to have lots of megacities in, in places like China, the increasing numbers of megacities. Um, so how you organise them, how you organise the transport, the basic services, the provision of resources, this becomes hugely important. And we'll come on to, um, in a moment, I think, the, the issue you touched on, which is jobs for people. And, you know, obviously technology is going to play a part in that, hopefully a positive one, but some say not. But um, certainly within the next um, 30 years, we're going to see a massive change in terms of the number of people and, and, and where they are in the world. Yes, and, and I think anybody who is running a business that is, um, that is global has to be mindful of that. If you're planning where the future markets are going to be, where the future demand is going to be, that becomes extremely important. Uh, but even in, in our own, um, in our own uh, national markets, we're obviously influenced by what's happening beyond them, so we have to be mindful of that. If you're European, um, quite simply and quite humblingly, our weight in the world is getting smaller because we're not in a, in a region of fast-growing population. We are um, less than a tenth of the, of the world's population. In fact, with a, if you look at Europe and compare it with Africa, there's a sort of mirror image that at the beginning of the last century, Europe was about 20% of the world in terms of population, Africa 10%, and that's completely trans turning itself mm. around by the middle of, of the century, Africa will be 22% or so, and Europe much less than 10%. Mm. And what about the uh, United States? Uh, will, will their influence diminish similarly, do you think? Because well, the United States is, um, is a, a bit of a, a mixed picture. Its uh, population is ageing, but not as fast as, as, as Europe. Um, it's had a lot of immigration, and um, the, the immigrants add to the population themselves and tend to have slightly somewhat higher birth rates as well. So um, if, if you divide the world into very rapidly aging societies, um, dynamic young uh, demographic outlook in, ter in, in terms of uh, Africa, India, for example, the United States is in the middle, somewhere okay. in between, along okay. with um, a lot of Latin American countries, for example. OK, well, let's move on to talk about the economy. You, you say there's going to be a shift, don't you, that, that, that the centre of gravity is going to move? Well, the centre of gravity is moving, and that's um, uh, something that, that, that uh, has been happening for some time, but I think it sometimes helps to really stand back and look at the, the helicopter picture of this over many years, and you, you start to see more clearly the trends that are happening more incrementally year by year. So back in, again, the middle of the last century, um, the world's centre of economic gravity, if you calculate that as, as a professor at, um, at London University has, uh, it was somewhere mid-Atlantic, and that very much feels like the world that I grew up in. That's where we felt the centre of the world's economy was. And it's been moving uh, steadily eastward as China has been growing rapidly, other Asian economies have been rising. 
Um, so that today it's perhaps somewhere um, ar around Iran, um, and it's going to be shifting even further by mid-century, so that it's perhaps somewhere along the between the borders of China and India. So, um, absolutely stunning uh, change. If you look at this shift from west to east, it, it tells you an awful lot about where um, economic um, power is, is is moving in the world. Uh, and in a sense, stepping back and taking an even longer historical perspective is is, is helpful. If you if you look at attempts to construct um, GDP or where GDP was produced a thousand years ago and then on to into the current uh, modern era, you see that for most of of, uh, of history, Asia was by far the biggest, most important contributor to global GDP. And that only changed when we started to have the, um, the uh, economic development, first of all, the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution in Europe, and then the very dramatic rise of the United States. And they overtook Asia. Asia uh, became much less significant in terms of global economic uh, weight. And then in recent years, that started to reverse. Asia has been grow growing extraordinarily rapidly. That's certainly true of, of China, but it's also been true of Southeast Asia. It was true of the Japanese economic miracle before that, and it's increasingly true of India as well now. Um, so that by mid-century, Asia will be back at um, probably well over half of the global economy, back to where many people would say was the historical norm, that the, the blip, if you like, was this period of um, European and then American um, surge now we'll be back in a period where Asia is once again the, the, biggest, the biggest area economically in the world. And I don't have to tell you that that again is, has huge implications for anybody planning a, a global business. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're going to come on and talk about culture as, as, mm -hmm. a, as a sort of heading in its own right, but I just want to touch on culture now because I suppose one thing that occurs to me is that the, the USA have been so very good at exporting their culture and and that those softer things if you like can have a tremendous influence on on where the center of gravity really is rather than perhaps where you if you just measure it in terms of of, of dollar signs uh, do you think that that will change as well or do you think that europe and and the united states will continue to to set the trends that the world the world follows um, i'm thinking about things like music and um, popular culture particularly Yes, I mean, there are various, you're absolutely right, there are various dimensions of power. Um, there's economic power, there's, there's force in numbers that we've been talking about, there's military power, where America still is the, the, overwhelming, um, the overwhelming force in the world and spends more on defence than the next seven or eight countries combined. So uh, America is, is still, you know, the huge force. and absolutely true culturally as well that is that is the case uh, very dynamic in terms of uh, both music and, and film um, television drama and you only have to look at what's happening now uh, with, the, with the latest reinvention of all that through um, th through through streaming services America is is powering ahead in that too but I think uh, it would be very surprising to me if economic um, self-confidence elsewhere doesn't produce cultural influences as well um, and I, th I think you will 
you do start to see that happening. After all, you know, Bollywood has a thriving film industry. China has a very proud culture. Already, actually, China is um, just, I think, a notch behind Italy in terms of world heritage sites as recognized by UNESCO, and it's trying to be number one in the world. Um, So the Chinese are very, uh, they're putting a lot of effort and money behind that. They're very conscious and mindful of their cultural Mm. uh, influences as well. Um, So I would would be wary of assuming that this Western um, preeminence in global culture is has a a God-given right to to continue forever. I think it will remain very strong, but increasingly, uh, even as as industries such as the advertising industry find messages that appeal to the growing markets, growing consumer markets, um, there'll be, I think, a growing awareness of different cultures Mm. that, that have to be appealed to. I suppose also we might see some sort of merging of cultures and a more monocultural almost in the world developing because with technology and, and you know, entertainment and media we've talked about already, um, you do see more and more things uh, uh, being um, interesting to more and more people. I mean, and yes, but I mean, it'd be a bit of a boring world if we only had one culture. It would be boring. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's going to happen uh, to that extent. But, yeah. but what, what strong cultures are very well able to do is to adapt or to take on and then make their own, in some sense, um, a strong idea from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so you get importing of ideas and then tweaking of them to fit into the local, mm. to the local culture. Um, I mean, this, the, these these things are are absolutely intriguing to to it's watch. Fascinating. And they, I can see that um, that there will be cultural um, cultural battles, if you like, as to yeah. who who gets to have the dominant voice. I suppose my, I was slightly um, uh, thinking about a visit I made to Stanford University not that long ago when we were wandering around the campus, and it it struck me that in the in the main, we weren't looking at Americans on that campus. There were everybody from around the world was there. And it, I thought, you know, hats off to the Americans because they basically are attracting the very best yeah. to work on and for mostly American companies, it seemed to me. But that sort of thing could encourage the stuff I was talking about. Yes, it could. And that, a lot of that has been happening. And America has been extraordinarily successful in attracting students from all over the world, not least from China. But then a lot of those Chinese students are now going home and they're finding um, opportunities at home in an extraordinarily vibrant China tech industry, which is, and this is perhaps the the, the key point in this context, which is starting to develop um, a world of its own, which isn't just a copycat thing of the Western Mm. um, tech industry. um, for a long time, it was thought, well, they just set up copycat Googles, co- copycat eBay, copycat um, Facebook, what have you. They've been doing very innovative Chinese uh, internet um, ecosystem and payment ecosystem and chat ecosystem, um, which is quite rapidly creating a cultural habits um, of their own and which then to some extent also spread back to Western countries as Chinese visitors flock in ever-growing numbers to visit. So hotels, for example, have to be 
very careful to um, have technology that um, is, yes. is, makes their Chinese guests yes, feel at home. Uh, and I, I was talking to some uh, an association of high-end retailers who uh, include Regent Street and um, I think Bond Street, and they are having to do exactly that because they've got they're missing opportunities as, as these very wealthy Chinese turn up. They want to pay with Tencent or exactly yes WeChat, whatever it's called. I can't remember now. But you know, and they don't have the technology at the moment. Yeah, to, so that that is that, that is going to be changing, and that these are conduits for culture. Since, since mm. we we talk about how culture spreads, um, and some ideas are you know ideas that that will be tried out here too and found to be found to be rather good. Um, the numbers, the sheer numbers of tourists that we are going to see um, in, in Europe and elsewhere from Asia is, is, is going to be, um, I think, a very big trend in the coming years because very naturally, as these countries grow wealthier, they want to, they want to see the world. Mm. Uh, and many of them have not yet travelled and are very keen to do so. So thinking ahead and, and even not that far ahead, looking at the world today, Politics seems to be changing, Daniel. Um, the old, easy to understand, left and right, is a sort of fractured into all sorts of different things. Can you tell me what you what you think is going on there? Yeah, I think it is getting more complicated, um, and and it's certainly uh, there's a, a I think a growing awareness that this is changing and that politics has to appeal to different sorts of constituencies. Partly because the world is is complicated, that the economy has become. Um, a service-dominated economy. It's no longer the same um, black and white, if it ever was simply that, but no, no, very crudely black and white, um, uh, left and right mix. And uh, what you have increasingly is a, a divide between people who are in favour of an open world very broadly, um, think globalisation is on the whole a good thing, think keeping open borders in one way or another to, 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 to uh, trade, uh, to ideas, even to, to migrants in many cases, um, is, is generally desirable. And those who want to build barriers and protect identity and nation, and of course you see that trend rather graphically in America with the election of Donald Trump, who wants to build his wall with Mexico and has an America first policy. Um, but you see it in Europe too with, with um, uh, more authoritarian uh, governments coming to power in places like Hungary and Poland, and even in Italy a meeting of um, populists of both left and right in a grand coalition completely crowding out the traditional centrist parties. So something rather serious is, is happening um, and it's reflecting the social changes that are, that are going on around us. And I think uh, this is probably quite a long process that's going to play itself out over, over many years and rather hard to see which forces are going to, are going to um, emerge as the strongest, but it's a much more complicated picture than we've had I think in the uh, in in the post-war years, um, and, until until the wall came down in Berlin. Mm. And do you, you see any similar political machinations in in the East, or is this a largely a Western phenomenon? 
Uh, well, I think it would be um, a mistake to think that Eastern politics are, are fixed. So if you take China as an example, it's interesting that um, there had been hopes that as China got richer, as it developed economically, as it joined the World Trade Organization, for example, as more and more Chinese moved into the middle classes, they, their politics would liberalize as had happened in other parts of Asia. That was a pattern we'd seen um, time and again. And I think somewhat to, to, to many people's surprise, actually the opposite has happened, that under uh, Xi Jinping, China has become in many ways more authoritarian. Similarly, the, the internet technologies that people thought would make control, central control, much harder turned out to be also quite useful tools for authoritarian regimes. They can, you know, big, big Brother can watch you and can control, you can wall off your internet quite effectively if you want to, as China does. So um, that is the trend at the moment, but I don't think we should assume that for, if you're looking at a um, at a time horizon of many decades that this will carry on being the case and that the Chinese middle classes won't care about things like um, personal freedoms and um, data privacy and uh, fears that the state is controlling too much of their lives, um, that, that they won't want freedoms to protest about consumer issues as we see arising repeatedly or land issues and that that or environmental issues and these can start to translate into uh, political movements as well. So I, I think um, it is a very big question how the Chinese system evolves over many years. It's an authoritarian regime but fundamentally at its heart authoritarian regime uh, is quite a fragile system. An interesting counterexample is India which has a kind of very vibrant but um, but quite messy democracy. Um, and that can, although it's less efficient in, in the sense of um, producing the economic goods as China has, it can also be quite an effective shock absorber in terms of social uh, pressures. Mm. I mean, I have heard uh, experts talk about how urbanization makes it more difficult for authoritarian governments to succeed. So, and you know, obviously, we've talked about how that's happening everywhere. So that may, and it's easy to see here, it could be a ferment for, you know, unhappiness. You've got very many people crushed together. It's easier for them to rise up and revolt, isn't it? So I suppose that could happen. Uh, yes, I mean, any pockets of, of people coming together is potentially dangerous for mm. an authoritarian uh, system. But the, 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 the fact is that you never quite know where the resistance is suddenly going to emerge strongly. At the moment, I think what you do see is a trend of authoritarianism uh, producing strong leaders in, in a number of countries, not just, I mentioned Xi Jinping, but you also look to uh, um, a country like Turkey with uh, President Erdogan or Russia with, with Vladimir Putin. This seems to be um, a, a period where such strong um, leaders who have um, quite a Sing, clear-headed, single-minded way of, of uh, removing sources of opposition, uh, resisting press pluralism and so on. Um, that, that seems to be the prevailing current at the moment, but I'm not sure that that will remain the case over the sort of period that we're looking mm. at. I mean, 
here we're talking about change, and of course, uh, although we talked about culture, there's, a, there's another side to uh, to culture, particularly in the um, in the speech you gave at our commercial conference. You talked a lot about how, for example, the power of, of women yes. is not just a Western phenomenon, but that is also spreading around the world. I think that's hugely important. I mean, we've we've seen it in a number of manifestations of it, uh, most strikingly recently in the Me Too movement, of course, but also just in the sheer numbers of women participating in the, the labour force. We recently um, in, saw the tipping point in America where over half of the workforce is, is, uh, are women. There's still a lot of ground to be made up at the upper echelons of all sorts of professions and uh, spheres of work. But this is huge social change compared to the the traditional way of um, the roles of, of women in society. And there are um, economies, and India would be a very good example here, um, where women's role in the labour force is still relatively um, restricted and where there's huge opportunity mm. if this were to change for economic development and using the, the talents fully of half the, half the population who are increasingly better educated but not carrying through that education into um, later years of, of professional life. Um, the same is, is true in many parts of, of Asia. So I think the question of how uh, women's involvement in the workforce, women's empowerment in the workforce and, and the ability to tap into that uh, huge um, potential um, economic boon is uh, is realised. That's extremely important. Okay, so let's think about technology, and uh, it's already affecting us, as I've already said, in in so many ways, and and it's changed the advertising industry out of all recognition. Changing my industry as well. I mean, there's hardly an industry which isn't being transformed well, by technology. Well, and if you if you look at uh, what so-called in inverted commas traditional industries, you pretty quickly discover that they're technology industries these days too and being, being changed fundamentally. And, and even those industries where we've thought, you know, the human side of things is so important, I mean, like journalism uh, and indeed advertising, we're hearing more and more about artificial intelligence being able to do many of the things that we didn't think uh, anyone other than humans could do. But tell me a little bit about what you think is going to happen and how it's going to affect the world and the economy and jobs and everything else. Yeah. Well, it's an area where it's especially difficult to, to, to put take out your crystal ball, of course, because it's moving so fast. I mean, the, the iPhone, for example, is only uh, a dozen years old. It's not, and yet it, it, it has completely brought on the smartphone era, which has transformed people's lives. We all walk around with these extraordinarily powerful machines uh, are, are with us. Um, so, who, who can say what will be with us in, in 30 years' time? But I think what you can do is look back and say, for a number of reasons, I, I think there's, um, there are strong grounds for thinking that technology is only going to be speeding up, not slowing down the pace of change um, over that sort of period. If you look, for example, at the state of fundamental physics, it's uh, reached a stage where you can explain a lot more of the basic phenomena in the world through um, equations, that basic level of understanding is there. And that means that you can henceforth develop technology um, much more by, um, by calculation than by experimentation. And that means a speeding up. Um, we see in biology the extraordinary exponential 
improvements in um, DNA sequencing, which is a sort of equivalent to the Moore's law that has driven the development of computing, um, the, the, the amazing improvements, relentless improvements in um, computing in microchip efficiency and the declining cost. Something akin to that is happening in, bi in, in biology now and is going to enable a sort of age of discovery in, in that area. And then you look at where the money's been going in, into things like artificial intelligence and into um, quantum computing and you can see the next wave of technology building on the previous waves of, 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 of uh, technology which each one more powerful than the next. So I think for all these reasons you can expect that um, the next few years are going to be um, ones where you have to brace yourself for even faster uh, dramatic discoveries in things like life sciences, in artificial intelligence and the regulators as well as the um, the, the, the industries that are being disrupted by this are going to struggle to keep up with the pace of change. Mm. And are you one of those that believes that we will develop, as we always have after the Industrial Revolution, and everything else, we develop new jobs for people to do, or one of those that thinks actually we've reached a tipping point and the machines will be able to do so much more of the things that need to be done that there will possibly be uh, a crisis around what you do with people, you know, whether they have jobs, whether you need to give them a universal benefit and, and yes. all of that. I, I, funnily enough, I sort of believe a bit of both, actually, because I, I think that when you, when you start to think uh, that um, there'll be nothing left to do because the machines will do everything, there's a bit of a paucity of imagination. We're, we're, human beings are amazingly imaginative at coming up with new things to do, and we will work with machines, I think, in in innovative ways, if you start to break down the, the task that actually a particular job involves, it's rarely as simple as just replacing it by machines. You may replace part of the job, but then there are other aspects of, uh, of the job that require or could benefit from a human touch in, in various ways. And the machines themselves, by doing new things, free up labour to, 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 to design new services. The world is full of jobs that didn't exist um, 10, 15 years ago because the technology didn't exist to support them. So all the, the world of app developers or bot uh, developers or drone technicians or artificial um, uh, tissue designers or indoor farmers, none of these roles existed um, for previous generation, but they could be very important for the next generation. So that, on that side of things, I'm... I'm um, I believe that we will do what we've done in the past, which is evolve and develop new jobs, new economies around the technology. Where I, I think there is a genuine problem, or one area where there's a genuine problem, is just the pace at which this change can happen, which it can be hugely disruptive. There's no guarantee that the new jobs come um, as fast as the old ones disappear, or that they are suitable for the types of skills that are being um, technologied out, if you like, and there will be no doubt lots of people who, who lack the skills to um, thrive in the new economy at the same time, and you see some of this already, that there can be tremendous shortage of, um, of, of, of the sorts of skills that are actually in demand. So you can have the, the strange thing of a mismatch between where there is very strong demand for, for, for human labour and 
areas where actually there is excess mm. capacity. I mean, is it too simple to say that the divide is between sort of intellectual labour and, and old-fashioned, you know, labour? Uh, um, I think that is a bit too simple because some intellectual labour is, is going to be um, competed for by machinery and some old-fashioned labour is, is still going to be needed. You know, the, you're still going to have to do the garden, for example. very good illustration of this right now is the trucking industry, I think. So people think, well, it's a, it's a doomed industry mm. because everything's going to be done by autonomous vehicles and drones and you'll no longer need this, these army which is, of truckers. Which employs millions of people. A very huge, absolutely huge industry. Mm. But what you find actually right now at the moment is there's a shortage of truckers in America uh, because, of course, demand has risen absolutely exponentially because of Amazon and home delivery, home shopping. So if you go to any office or any uh, home, actually, you'll see this pile up of parcels. Mm and someone's got to deliver them, and there's a shortage of truckers. So, you know, it's, when you go into, dig into the details of, of these labour markets, they typically tend to be much more intricate and more complicated than the, the simplistic view of, oh, that's doomed, or that's going to be, um, you know, AI is going to make that irrelevant. Mm. Well, look, we, we've touched on um, so many things here. I mean, can I, but, because we need, to, we need to wind up, really, I suppose, can I ask you, are you optimistic about about the next fifty years or thirty to fifty years, or uh, is it a mixture of both pessimism is, and optimism? Yeah, well, realism. I, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, you know, people living longer. We talked about demography. That's a very good thing. It's wonderful that people can have longer, healthier mm. lives. Um, and uh, the development of poorer parts of the world is also a magnificent thing. I mean, the rise of China, uh, the coming. Um, rise of other parts of the um, less developed world, um, that's ending misery for millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people. That, that is an uh, unalloyed good thing. Um, and the technology that helps people, that develops new possibilities that can bring um, mobility, education, connectivity again on a mass scale that's, these are also good things, but there are also unintended consequences and always have been of technology, and we, we, we see that repeatedly. We're seeing it now. I mean, the fuss over um, cyber attacks and cyber crime, the dark side of the internet, mm. um, this wasn't something that people worried a lot about when, when there was the great optimism about all the benefits that the, this liberating technology would, would bring. Um, we're going to face big unintended consequences, I'm sure, in, in uh, the life sciences as well, as we start to be able to do more and more clever things with genome um, uh, uh, or DNA um, uh, development and, and genome interference in human genomes, for example. We have to grapple with the issues of designer babies and so on. Um, and there will be unintended, there always have been unintended consequences of technology in, in a kind of repetitive cycle. So I'm nervous about that and particularly nervous about the scale and pace at which this uh, arrives, even as enormously um, positive things will happen through technology as well and the overall, um, overall scope for progress has probably never been greater. Yes, it's, it's, it's funny um, because, of course, we talked earlier about people finding jobs in this new world. And um, one of the areas where, where criminal minds have found lots of jobs is it on the dark side of the web. And, you know, we are grappling 
in the advertising industry with, with ad fraud, where you know millions of, of bots appear to be looking at ads on the internet. They're not. And you know people are getting advertising um, revenues for, uh, for ads that no one's actually seen. I mean, we're trying to get to the heart of that. That's not easy. And, and I think that is a very good illustration of how you have an excitement of a new technology, um, and which is doing genuinely, you know, bringing results for, for, for clients. You find your customers more cheaply than, than was possible before or more in a more targeted way. But then you discover, whoops, there mm. is a big problem here. It's not, the numbers aren't what we thought they were exactly, and we've got to get to the bottom of this, and you try to play catch up with the problems. And there's typically, quite a lag in, in, in getting serious about admitting that there's a problem in the first place, getting a general acceptance and then um, going after it with a, with a, real, uh, with a real will. Uh, and it's, by the time you start to do that, um, this, this fraudulent industry is fairly well entrenched and very smart at evading your countermeasures. So mm. it's, it's, a, it's a constant process of trying to um, trying to keep pace with the good, with the bad guys. Well, Daniel, that's been a fascinating chat, and um, uh, you've you've opened certainly my mind to lots of uh, things that I hadn't thought of before. I do think it's uh, on the whole an optimistic uh, future. Uh, I also think that the and you you alluded to it, the speed of change is something that we'll become more used to. Um, but. Thank you for talking to us. Um, I hope that uh, our listener enjoys uh, your insights and observations as much as I have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, thanks to Daniel for shedding some light on what we might expect in the next 30 years or so. I mean, some, some of the younger people in our industry today will still be working, hopefully, in the advertising industry in 30 years' time. So some of the things we were talking about they may see come to pass. Anyhow, you have been listening to Paul Bainsfair and this has been the IPA podcast.